bit more turbulence. The economics, the statistics. A triple dead recession. Collapsing commodities. Monetary policy has to do the heavy lifting work. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome back to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora, on a day when we will indeed assess whether monetary policy has to do the heavy lifting work. Mario Draghi rings in Europe's new era of QE with $1.3 trillion in a bond-buying stimulus plan. The S&P 500 index erases uh, 2015 losses and bonds gain on news of the ECB stimulus. The euro weakens to an 11-year low and oil tumbles. This morning on Money for Nothing, we'll look at whether the ECB move will help to allay volatility in the markets. Our guests for this segment are Klaus Bader of Societe Generale and uh, Paul Schulte of Schulte Research International. Then Paul Gillis of the Guangha School of Management at Peking University joins us to discuss China's proposed foreign investment law and the implications of this on company ownership structures. Richard Harris of Port Shelter Investment Management is is back as guest host. Good morning, Richard. Hello, Renita. What do you make of uh, Mario Draghi's bigger-than-expected bazooka? Well, you know, this looks as if it's almost Super Mario's uh, finest moment. You know, he's been talking about this for a long time, since 2012, in fact. And um, talk has done a lot because it's brought interest rates down uh, quite substantially in, in many of the markets around the world. But he'd come to the time where he really had to do something. And I guess if one thing comes out of it, you have to think trying to get all of these Eurozone banks together to agree to something when they vehemently disagree on many things has probably been the biggest feat of all. Yeah, he's been saying for something like two years that he will do whatever it takes, and that time has now arrived. Here's Draghi's announcement in his own words. Under this expanded program, the combined monthly purchases of public and private sector securities will amount to 60 billion euros. They are intended to be carried out until end September 2016 and will in any case be conducted until we see a sustained adjustment in the path of inflation which is consistent with our aim of achieving inflation rates below but close to 2% over the medium term. In March 2015, the Eurosystem will start to purchase Euro-denominated investment-grade securities issued by Euro-area governments and agencies and European institutions in the, securities market, in the secondary market. U.S. stocks sure, uh, saw sharp rises following the news. The Dow Jones was up 263 points to 17,817. The S&P 500 rose 31 points, 1.5% to 2,063, while the Nasdaq jumped 83 points to 4,750. European markets were also up approximately 1% to 1.5% across the board. Investors have been anticipating the news for some time, but some elements came as a surprise. The amounts, the time frame, the euro trading down. Here's Morgan Stanley CEO James Gorman. 
Well, it's certainly, let's start, it's a positive, right? We've been waiting for something like this. We've now got it. Um, Draghi is showing that he's earnest, which is good. Uh, they're taking very seriously. It'll be interesting to see the details of how they're sharing the sovereign risk and so on. Uh, but I think for now, let's just put it down, uh, Eric, it's a positive. This is $60 billion. It's It's not a huge surprise on the upside, but it's positive to what people were expecting. The euro will probably trade down. I think it's good for the markets. Yeah, the euro is currently trading at 1.13 US dollars. And the German Bund fell significantly too in a steep cliff-like decline. No surprises there. So the question is, will QE in Europe inflate assets there in a way that it did in the US? I mean, it should do, but we've got some broader issues in Europe that we didn't have as much in the United States, and they're obviously structural. They're fiscal issues. Uh, we've got greater concerns now around uh, the enduring presence of the euro uh, and, you know, the elections in Greece this weekend. So there's still there's a lot of uncertainty and volatility. This, that said, this is a very important first step and a necessary step. And then there are the slightly less optimistic, or should I say, uh, a little more suspicious. Here's George Osborne, Chancellor of the Exchequer in England. This is welcome action from the European Central Bank. Uh, but action from a central bank is necessary but not sufficient for a European recovery. We want to see this accompanied by clear plans to make the European continent more competitive, to back business in Europe, to create jobs, to make sure our public finance is in order. Now, we have all those ingredients in the UK, and that's why our economic plan is delivering a strong economic recovery. We want to see all those ingredients in place on the European continent so that the whole of Europe recovers. Is 1.3 trillion US dollars enough? Here's Mohammed El Aryan of Alliance. Well, it depends what your objective is. So is it large? Yes. Is it open-ended? No. Is it unambiguous? We don't know yet because it depends how they pool the risk. If the objective is to restore economic growth and break the expectations of deflation, the ECB cannot do that on its own. If it's an intermediate objective of weakening the currency further, keeping interest rates relatively low, and minimizing the differentiation among member countries, yes, it can do that. Um, the question is, at what cost? So, so I think it's really important to ask the question, what is it that we want the ECB to do? Is it a financial outcome or is it an economic outcome? And there's a huge difference in terms of its ability to deliver. Bonnie Baha of Double Line says that the devil really is in the details. We've seen that the markets like QE. This was a very well-telegraphed move on the part of the ECB. I, I don't think anyone was surprised. The devil's in the details, though. Who shares the risk on this? Uh, who buys this debt? Is it going to be the European Central Bank, the 19 member banks? I, I noticed Draghi was very vague this morning in terms of details. He talked about the program including the purchases of institutional debt. Well, well, what institutions? Would that include corporate debt? That's That's been a question lingering out there in the market for a while. At the end of the day, the most important thing is, and this is where the Germans have been so concerned, the structural reforms have been kicked down the road. The, the can has been kicked down the road. I mean, there's a jarring statistic I heard that something like 7% of the... Uh, uh, of the population on the planet it's in the eurozone 25 percent of the gdp is produced there and 50 percent of social security spending occurs there Th that's not sustainable and as to whether this will be a catalyst for the u.s fed to raise interest rates Janney's chief investment strategist mark lucini says that maybe the announcement means that the fed could actually delay their decision 
I think there's a non-trivial chance that this helps to delay the Federal Reserve's liftoff date uh, with regard to interest rates uh, if the dollar continues to strengthen vis-a-vis a trade-weighted basket of, all, of alternative currencies. Uh, that said, of course, we know that uh, exports as a percentage of U.S. GDP is about 15 percent, of which about 15 percent go to Europe. So it's a relatively small part of our overall GDP that's affected by the dollar-euro cross. But that said, if the de facto effect still is toward seeing the dollar strengthen, which we've seen, is going to work counterproductively to multinational profits, we know. And in addition, it's de facto tightening. And in addition to that, it helps to temper inflation here in the U.S., which, of course, we know is part of the dual mandate that the Fed is attempting yeah. to resurrect. So, Richard, uh, what are your thoughts? Do you think this will actually serve as a catalyst for the Fed or delay it? Well, I think if you're looking at what the Fed is likely to do, they're just going to be looking at what's happening domestically within the U.S. Um, I think that the chances are, though, that uh, because it'll mean that the dollar will stay strong, uh, inflation will stay low in the U.S., and there won't be really much of a pressure for for rates to go up uh, unless the Fed thinks that the markets are going out of control. Yeah, all right. Let's bring in our guest uh, for this morning. We have uh, Paul Schulte, who is the CEO and chairman of Schulte Research International. And we have Klaus Bader, who is the chief Asia-Pacific economist at SOCGen. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Hello. Klaus, if I could uh, start with you. Uh, you know, the markets have uh, reacted positively um, so far. Would you say that all of this has been priced in or will stocks actually trade higher? I think the market is in the process of um, digesting the details, and I think it's not fully priced in. You know, the extent of the program that Mr. Draghi announced yesterday was evidently not fully discounted. Um, the euro was off three big figures, a little bit more. Um, peripheral bond yields were down between 20 and 30 basis points, or no, 10, 15, 20 basis points, and Greece rallied um, a full 50 basis points. And stock markets reacted fairly well, too. So um, I think this is an additional catalyst. And I think what markets are going to be considering now is just how much pressure is this move going to put on other central banks to also move? Um, we've seen already on Tuesday Denmark, I mean, not a key economy, Denmark moving rates. Maybe the Bank of Canada was also at the margin influence in its completely unexpected decision to cut interest rates. I mean, we have argued for several months now that uh, even though the U.S. is not has stopped easing monetary policy and is about to tighten monetary policy, that we in Asia are actually um, in the middle of an easing trend, and that easing trend is going to continue, and I think we're going to see more interest rate cuts. You know, on the whole, I think it's good news, though, for the global economy. It's good news for Asia as well, because it does support the European economy, and... That's good news for Asia because a lot of exports go to the EU. Klaus, what about this divergence uh, theory? People are, uh, the big theme is divergence at the moment. Whenever you pick up a research report, everyone's talking about divergence, you know, uh, US good, Europe bad, this kind of thing. We've seen a lot of movements. Where do you sit on that? Is divergence going to be a critical issue this year between the economies doing different things or not? 
Yeah, I think it is. It's definitely one of the hallmarks. And um, divergence, of course, uh, extends into um, interest rate trends, and um, it will inject volatility. We've seen a number of quite surprising moves, um, and um, so I think uh, divergence is is a big issue. But I don't think it's just an issue between the U.S. and Europe. I think it's an issue between the U.S. and commodity producers. I think it's an issue between um, Japan and um, and the U.S. So I think this divergence topic is a lot broader than just U.S. versus Europe. So, Paul, if I could bring you in. Now, you say that, uh, you know, behind the thinking of the ECB's new policy, uh, there might be a dire financial position of many European banks because uh, instead of deposit-taking institutions, many of them function more like finance companies. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Yeah, I think the, the size of this uh, uh, is very clearly reflective of the fact that the financial institutions are in deep, deep trouble. And not only that, but the other research I've come up with shows you that the corporate sector in in, in, in Europe is in deep shape. Uh, if you do a credit test of the whole European sector, Spain is the worst corporate sector in the world, followed by Italy, followed by France, and I have to say followed by Germany. So we have a, a dual problem with not only the financial sector but also the corporate sector. So this package is 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 perfect for at least you know extending the problems, extending the uh, issues for another couple of years and helping healing. Well, in order to get the deal done, uh, Draghi had to do a lot of horse trading with people within the um, the central bank, especially with the Germans. And what they've come up with is that eighty percent of the purchases of mm-hmm. the bonds are going to be done by each national. Central banks, so the Germans will buy German bonds and the French will buy French. How do you think that's going to work itself out? Some people are saying that may see the breakup of the euro. Well, not only that, but I think that the cent- so you think there'll be the breakup of the euro? No, no, no. But but uh, the, the ECB is only going to buy about twenty five percent of this. The rest of it's going to be bought by the European Investment Bank, the EIB, also local banks, and it's not clear yet the differentiation between government and uh, corporate debt between and among all these entities. So I think that needs to be worked out yet. I think it's about uh, 78% uh, uh, would be sovereign and the rest would be corporate. So, um, uh, you know, as much as investors have been anticipating this and, you know, markets have reacted uh, positively, there is uh, a whole slew of people on the other side of the fence who say, well, you know, maybe this is not going to work. I mean, Larry Summers uh, made a great quote at Davos uh, just talking about central banks uh, in, in general. And he said, you know, if there's one person who stands up in a crowded room, then they get a better view of what's out there. But if everybody stands up, Nobody can see, and it just gets more uncomfortable. So are we at a stage where it's just uncomfortable or, or getting to be uncomfortable? Klaus? Well, I don't have to say I don't really understand that quote. Um, <laughs> I don't That's really know what it's supposed to mean. <laughs> I mean. The fact is that, uh, you know, everybody is doing the same thing, which yeah. is uh, intervening in the market in a quite a big way. And what it's doing is reducing interest rates dramatically, particularly bond yields and longer-term interest rates. So uh, clearly financial conditions. I think there's a cumulative effect here. So I don't think that uh, anybody is offsetting. Yeah. yeah. Well, is it going to work? You know, I very much agree with uh, some of the comments that were made earlier here. Um, the ECB can contribute to a healing process and uh, getting the European economy back on its feet, um, just as other central banks have done, particularly the US and, um, and the UK. Um, but 
it can't do it all alone. Um, clearly, there has to be further consolidation um, of public finances in some countries. Um, there has to be more structural reform to make the European economies more resilient um, and um, strengthen the corporate sector, etc., etc. So, um, you know, I do think that uh, it is going to contribute to the solution in that sense. I think it will work. Um, the principal channel through which this will work is through the lower exchange rate, um, which is going to redistribute global economic growth towards Europe. I think that's one key channel. Um, and I think it does another thing. I mean, I'm, I'm very interested. I was very interested to hear the comments about the uh, state of the European financial institutions. I'm not a specialist here, so I'm certainly not going to argue. But one thing's for sure, um, particularly peripheral um, banks, commercial banks, have loaded up on government bonds um, because there was no, there absolutely no credit demand. So they were loading up on government bonds and and they have, of course, made an absolute killing on those bonds because those bonds have absolutely surged. And that's really helped the the financial situation of the European financial sector. And the no ECB is sitting on $100 billion in unarticulated uh, in, in un, um, profits as well. So the ECB's balance sheet is also that. One thing I would add is that something we need to talk about is the dollar keeps on going up and up. There is a profound dollar shortage right now. So one of the, the the perverse implications of this is that <clears throat> the U.S. government is not going to be able to tighten. The U.S. government is going to have to ease. The U.S. government is going to have to create a lot of dollars for the world or the world is going to suffocate in deflation and commodity prices will collapse. And so this is one of those weird, perverse implications for the U.S. where the biggest winner here is the U.S. Gentlemen, isn't this... Um a situation where we've got fantastic terms of business. We've got interest rates lower than you can go. We've got very little pressure on uh, wages and employment. Uh, we've got oil prices down, which is giving far more QE to Europe than ever anything Draghi could possibly do. Why aren't we just shooting for the stars? The dollar strength is very bad for emerging markets, and that's what's dragging, that's what's containing emerging markets They're right now. They're a small part of the global economy. Well, we're sitting here in an emerging market next to China, so in that sense, yeah. But otherwise, yeah, I, I think that's right. The, the, this is, the oil prices are great for Korea, Japan, China, uh, mostly Southeast Asia, Indonesia, India. So in that sense, it's positive. Uh, India, Korea, China are going to cut interest rates further. I have no doubt in my mind. This is good for financial assets in Korea and uh, in China and in India. Uh, India is going to have more rate cuts without a shadow of a doubt. This is very good for equities for Asia. So, um, yeah, the, speaking of equities, I mean, the big question that investors are asking is, is, is this a time to invest specifically in European equities or, or equities on both sides of the Atlantic? Klaus? Well, um, you know, I'm not an asset allocator, but we have some very good asset allocators in our firm, and uh, their view is that uh, U.S. valuations are very stretched, um, and that uh, far better value is to be found in uh, the European uh, equity market. Um, and I think that's a fairly widely uh, widely shared view, and um, this is, of course, especially true if U.S. interest rates really are going to go up, not just at the short end, but also at the long end, then uh, the risk premium is uh, going to rise um, of the equity market if it uh, stays stable. And in that sense, it looks, uh, the U.S. markets look very, very fully valued. Um, Paul, can I come in on this? Do you think uh, U.S. markets are stretched? The last I saw, they were around 18 times. Now, I can remember a lot higher 
multiples in the U.S. Well, the first of all, the corporate sector is in one of the best shapes it's been in in a generation. It is the U.S. banking system is in one of the best shapes it's been in in a generation. The U.S. banks have some of the lowest leverage and some of the highest cash levels in a generation. So the U.S. is, I think, the U.S. is entering a golden age. Uh, the United States uh, S and P 500 uh, and the Dow have returns on equity of something like north of 20% for 2015. And so I think what's stretched is like the private equity element of NASDAQ. I think that's the, the pocket of leverage that is stretched. And so I would say San Francisco is an epicenter of a potential problem. But overall, I think um, I, I also agree, by the way, in the terms of the, the, the European banks are trading at a, a 50% discount to the U.S. banks right now. And they're trading at a 90% discount to Indonesia. And before we wrap up the segment, what about high yield? Paul? Well, that's the problem. One of the problems with high yield is that uh, 16, per 16 to 18% of the high yield market is oil and gas. And if oil keeps going down, that's blowing up. And one of the risks, I just got back from a global road show seeing clients, and, and one thing that scares clients in the high yield market is the way in which the oil and gas sector could spread to other parts of the high yield market. So there's a lot of concern there in the high yield market right now. Uh, in the way in which the oil and gas sector is imploding, but given very low oil prices. So I'd be careful about that one. All right. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Unfortunately, we're out of time. That is Paul Schulte, CEO and chairman of Schulte Research International, and Klaus Bader, who is the chief Asia-Pacific economist at SOCGen. Thank you for joining us on Money for Nothing. The Nikkei is up 160 points to 17,489. Australia's ASX index uh, up 1% to 5,445. And Sills Cosby also up 1% to 1,940. The euro is currently trading at 1.13 US dollars. The US dollar worth 118 yen and the pound sterling will buy you 11 Hong Kong dollars and 63 cents. If you're thinking of using pesticides, you should first look into the pest problem and consider other measures like improving hygiene. If pesticides are really needed, only use appropriate and registered products and follow the instructions on the label. Don't spray pesticides near naked flames, wall sockets, and running electrical appliances. And keep them away from children, pets, and food. Always use pesticides safely and properly. The time is now 8.24 a.m. and China's proposed new investment law could have far-reaching consequences. Among the implications, it could result in an easing of investment control in areas that Beijing has deemed sensitive, like Internet companies. Joining us to discuss this is Paul Gillis, a tax expert and professor at the Guangha School of Management at Peking University. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. So, uh, Paul, this new investment law uh, specifically affects uh, companies that are known as VIEs. Can you explain to our audience what a VIE is? Sure. The, um, uh, the, the, a very, VIE is a variable interest entity, and that is a U.S. accounting concept. Uh, but it's been used in China uh, to, uh, to, to get around the foreign investment rules that have prohibited foreign companies from investing in uh, certain sectors of China's economy. And uh, the VIE structure, because it's a workaround to get around the uh, uh, Chinese law, has always been been questionable as to whether or not it actually works. And some investors have been badly burned when uh, 
when the deal hasn't hasn't come together. Uh, so what's happened in this proposed foreign investment law? Uh, they have uh, uh, they've taken on the issue and they have uh, uh, they've established that a, that a BIE uh, can be uh, used in China in certain circumstances, um, but it cannot be used in others. So uh, how does this uh, new law specifically impact internet companies? Well, when you look at China's internet companies, they've almost all listed in the United States. There are a couple of exceptions, like Tencent, uh, that have listed in Hong Kong. And uh, the uh, uh, the reason why most of them, one of the reasons why most of them list in the United States is that they're allowed to have uh, control structures, two classes of stock that allow the founders to stay in control, even if they sell down a uh, majority of the stock to outside shareholders. Now, Hong Kong doesn't allow that, and uh, that's why Alibaba uh, decided not to list in Hong Kong and instead uh, chose to list in the United States. Uh, what these new rules do is they actually give a favor, uh, favorite advantage to U.S. markets because if companies use this uh, uh, structure that allows the Chinese founders to stay in control, they're saying they'll treat that entity as if it's a Chinese entity for purposes of the foreign investment law. Paul, we're running a bit short of time. uh, Companies Uh, like Alibaba will be legitimate. Paul, uh, just uh, very quickly, this actually, this law change looks as if it could be quite substantial because the VIEs have been used for some very large companies. It's going to, is it really going to wash all that away and bring in a whole new set of laws or is it just more moderate than that? Well, it looks like it's a good fix for uh, certain companies uh, like uh, particularly Alibaba and Baidu, uh, which clearly will gain a benefit from this. Their uh, operational structures will be legitimized. Uh, a lot of the risk to foreign investors goes away, and that should be reflected in an increased stock price. You know, there's no doubt that uh, there was a lot of attention paid to this VIE structure when Alibaba tried to list, and uh, this proposal by the uh, Ministry of Commerce would uh, would quiet down those uh, those concerns. All right, Paul, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Paul Gillis. He is a tax expert and a professor at the Guangha School of Management at Peking University. So, uh, Richard, here we are almost at the end of the show. I mean, later today, uh, HSBC and Market will uh, give us the flash PMI for China. Uh, at the end of the week, what else should we be thinking about as we go into the week? Well, I think that this European QE is going to really occupy the markets for for a little while. Its impact on Asia, though, could well be quite similar to the US in that a bit more liquidity means that people are going to be looking outside. So I would imagine some of that liquidity is going to move its way into Asia very much as it did with the the US um, QE. So will we see some activity with the Stock Connect then? Well, uh, the Stock Connect is interesting. There still seem to be a few sticky areas. But and of course, most of the trading has been to the north into China. Um, So I think we could certainly see that. But I could also see other parts of Southeast Asia, India, markets that aren't oil related uh, and not necessarily uh, have performed particularly well. I think they could see be the beneficiaries of some liquidity. 
All right. Thank you so much for joining us this morning on Money for Nothing. That is Richard Harris of Port Shelter Investment Manager, our regular Friday co-host. If you have questions you'd like to put to him, please uh, feel free to comment on Money for Nothing's Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash Money for Nothing on RTHK Radio 3. The Nikkei is up 153 points to 17,482. Australia's ASX index up 61 points to 5,452 and Sol's Cospi up 1% to 1,940. Gold has moved up as well. It's currently uh, trading at $1,301.20 per ounce and Brent crude oil is at $48.52. This is Renita Malhotra-Hora wrapping up for this week on Money for Nothing. We'll be back uh, next week to talk about more exciting news in the world of finance. A quick look at the weather forecast for today. It'll be fine, dry mainly during the day with a maximum temperature of around 19 degrees Celsius. Currently, the temperature is 15 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 70%. And here is the news with Todd Harding. Royal officials in Saudi Arabia have announced the death of King Abdullah bin Abdulaziz. He was 90 and had been in hospital for several weeks, suffering from pneumonia. He's been succeeded by his half-brother Salman, who's 79. The BBC's Sebastian Usher looks back at his life. When he became king in 2005, Abdullah had already been day-to-day leader for some 10 years, as his predecessor Fahd was debilitated by a stroke. During his time in power, a series of al-Qaeda-inspired bombings within the country threatened the Saudi dynasty, but tough security measures mixed with offers of forgiveness helped the authorities weather the storm. King Abdullah's image as one of the more pious and less rapacious royal family members was a big help. He also encouraged reform, however gradual, sanctioning moves to rein in the religious police and approving the country's first elections, albeit local and limited. But already an old man when he became king, Abdullah could only ever really be a transitional figure, leaving the future of his country uncertain. There's been a favourable market reaction to the announcement by the European Central Bank of its most aggressive policy yet to counter deflation.